This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is A World to Win, The Life and Works of Karl Marx by Sven Eric Liedman and translated by Jeffrey N. Skinner. In this essential new biography, the first to give equal weight to both the work and life of Karl Marx, Sven Erik Liedman expertly navigates the imposing, complex personality of his subject through the turbulent passages of global history. A World to Win follows Marx through childhood and student days, a difficult and sometimes tragic family life, his far-sighted journalism, and his enduring friendship and intellectual partnership with Friedrich Engels. Building on the work of previous biographers, Liedman employs a commanding knowledge of the 19th century to create a definitive portrait of Marx and his vast contribution to the way the world understands itself. He shines a light on Marx's influences, explains his political and intellectual interventions, and builds on the legacy of his thought. Liedman shows how Marx's masterpiece, Capital, illuminates the essential logic of a system that drives dizzying wealth, grinding poverty, and awesome technological innovation to this day. A World to Win, The Life and Works of Karl Marx by Sven Erik Liedman, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I couldn't get Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the show in the weeks before her election because she was wearing out her shoes, knocking on doors, and doing the sort of critical grassroots work that allowed her, a socialist and member of DSA, to win the most startling and important Democratic Party primary upset in memory. You all already know this, but Ocasio-Cortez is a 28-year-old working-class Latina champion committed to social transformation who beat one of the most powerful men in Congress and the King of Queens. Anyhow, I'm still just as thrilled as the rest of you. And today, I'm speaking to Ocasio-Cortez about her victory and where the movement that victory has turbocharged goes from here. Then I'm speaking to Ryan Grimm, the D.C. bureau chief of The Intercept, which, unlike most media outlets, paid close attention to the race before, rather than after, she won. This episode is part one of a multi-part series that I'm running all this week on the future of socialist and left electoral politics, looking at what's going on in New York to think through larger questions for the nationwide movement. I'll be releasing interviews all week, including with Cynthia Nixon, who is taking on New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, DSA member Julia Salazar, a candidate for state senate in Brooklyn, Kate Aronoff, a journalist who recently wrote a piece on Our Revolution and Justice Democrats for Dissent, and Seth Ackerman, Jacobin's executive editor and the author of the article Blueprint for a New Party, an essential analysis of how the socialist left should think about electoral politics. And Bernie Sanders, too. I talked to him about Ocasio-Cortez and the future of the left. Before we get rolling, we depend on contributions from listeners like you at patreon.com slash the dig to keep this podcast up and running. We also send cool lefty books to supporters and a weekly newsletter. So if you haven't yet, please contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who just won the Democratic primary in New York's 14th Congressional District. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, wow, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. My first question is is one with probably the most pragmatic utility to my listeners, which is mm-hmm. how did you win? What did the on-the-ground field operation look like? The, the way you yeah. put it in your vi- viral campaign video was the race is about the people versus money. We've got the people they've got money. What what did that people power look like? For me, and I think for this entire campaign, I think I, starting off the campaign, I knew, I didn't know, I didn't know everything I was getting into, but I certainly knew the basic mechanisms of the kind of campaign that my opponent was going to run, um, because it was just going to be your standard DCCC corporate Democrat campaign. So um, usually those campaigns don't focus on the field so much. And I was coming into this race with the background as an organizer and the background of an organizer. So uh, from the very beginning, I was always focused on organizing people and building a coalition um, and deepening a coalition with other organizers. So the, I would say the campaign was almost exclusively or entirely um, focused on physical organizing and digital outreach to reinforce that physical organizing. So uh, in terms of our actual campaign on the ground, we knocked on 120,000 doors around. Um, Yeah, we, and we, Almost everybody involved in this campaign was actually a first-time organizer. We had, um, you know, I built relationships with with other previous organizers. Many of the organizers I knew, though, were not electoral organizers. So, I mean, and and I that's because I come from a background more of education organizing and activism. So a lot of the activists and organizers that I knew and that I had worked with actually had a very large amount of cynicism towards electoral politics and almost you know most of them deliberately did not get involved in electoral politics because of their cynicism but I think given that relationship and I spent a good six months honestly just building trust with a lot of grassroots organizations um, and and kind of I think earning some of that trust and credibility to turn out people who normally do not believe in electoral politics. So we knocked on 120,000 doors. We sent like 170 odd thousand text messages to people in the district. We did another 120,000 uh, phone calls to voters in the district uh, before we even um, before we even got to that phase of the Democratic turnout. A year earlier, actually, uh, which is a story that doesn't get told too often, a year earlier, we ran an entire get out the registration campaign because New York City 
has the most restrictive tactics. laws. It's really yeah, something. We, New York is one of the most suppressive states for voting in America. And so um, you have to register, you have to switch your registration. If you're already registered to vote in New York and you're an independent or unaffiliated voter, you have to switch your party registration almost a year in advance to ri- to be able to vote in the next year's primary. And that hurt the Bernie absurd. campaign a lot. Oh, yeah. We have three million independent and unaffiliated voters in New York State. It's the largest voting bloc, uh, and they are consistently disenfranchised, as it is in the rest of the United States. And so a year before the election, we did a get out the registration drive where we pulled our voter file and we pulled every independent and unaffiliated voter. And we made a, we made another about ten to 13,000 phone calls a year ago letting people know, hey, there's going to be a progressive candidate running for Congress next year. She doesn't take corporate money, but the only way we can win this election is if folks like you decide to constitute and join the Democratic Party, just or at least register as a Democrat um, so that we could count on your vote next year. And you can do whatever you want after that because- <laughs> You don't have to call yourself a a Democrat. You don't have to identify as a Democrat, but please consider registering as a Democrat. (laughs) Right, right. And I spent days and hours begging. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And a lot of people, very understandably, honestly, that was the hardest canvassing of the entire campaign. It was a year ago. That was the most slammed doors I got. That was the most people yelling at me that I got. And honestly, it was understandable. It was totally understandable. I picked up the phone and people would just be cussing me out. And I'm just like, <laughs> listen, I get it. Like, I get why you don't want to be a Democrat. Um, but, you know, I, I don't even know how effective that organizing was because there, the state understandably gives you no real method of tracking Um whether that person actually registered once you sent them to that page and things like that. But at least what I think it did is that it helped it actually that little effort a year ago, whether it was successful or unsuccessful, it really helped us cut our teeth in the basics of door to door electoral organizing, cutting the turf, getting your ones and twos, as we call it, you know, getting identifying your supporters, and um, that is how that is that was the basis for our entire campaign. We didn't rely on people who knew how to do these things. We counted on really having a message that got people enthusiastic, that got people fired up. And then once they were fired up and asked, "What can I do?" We trained them ourselves, and we said, "Hey, listen, it's not that hard. Download this app. Here's what you do." And Electoral organizing is not that difficult. Sure, there's a little process to it, but once it takes a day, not even a day, it takes and maybe 30 minutes to an hour of practicing, and then you just learn while you're, while you're out in the field. And that's exactly what we did. We trained everyday people who wanted to get involved, and we taught them the, you know, the ABCs of doing it. Our entire field operation was pretty much our campaign. We didn't run any television ads. My opponent ran ads the entire month of June. He sent about 10 to 15 glossy mailers, depending on who you were, to almost every single registered Democrat in the district. Sounds very compelling. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I joked, I, I called them Victoria's Secret catalogs because that's <laughs> straight to what the recycling they are. bin. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're like these four color glossy things with like kind of like headshots on the front. Um, and people's mailboxes were getting buried with them. Uh, we sent about three postcards um, to us, to, a, to about 50,000 people because that's what we could afford at the end. Um, but we sent three postcards. Um, not all of them were same, sent to the same people, but there there was some overlap. And uh, yeah, we sent about three postcards and that's what we did. And uh, that was our mailer comparison. So we were completely outspent in, uh, in commercials. We were completely outspent at the mailbox, but we were not outworked in the street. There was very light field presence. Um, you know, he had people out there, but it wasn't that many. And we had hundreds and hundreds of volunteers coming in. Towards the end, towards that final weekend, people were driving in from Massachusetts. People were coming in from Ohio. A guy flew in from Iowa. And I really do think that that is the advantage of an enthusiasm gap. Um, Because, you know, the media may not have been paying attention to our race, but everyday people very much were. Everyday people very much were. And we we also had a very sick digital game which was really important for making up um, that gap as well. Yet almost immediately after your victory, establishment figures tried to tell a different story, including from governor, people in Governor Cuomo's circle, and they attempted to, to reduce your win to you better matching your district's demographics, which seemed to me like a very convenient way to deny the magnitude of the insurgency underway that poses a threat to those very same people. What do you make of how the system that you ran against, how they are, how it is interpreting and spinning your win? I'm not too concerned with it. You know, I, at the beginning, uh, within those first 24 to 48 hours, I saw all of the excuses that were being tossed out um, about my win. First of all, it didn't bother me because none of these people had studied this race or paid any attention to it. So I also knew that part of the dynamic was it was kind of a emperor has no clothes situation for both the political establishment. And I also think, frankly, for a lot of mainstream media, um, because this huge, shocking national political development happened and nobody was paying attention to it. And frankly, it wasn't for lack of trying. Like, let me tell you, all a lot of these people that were scrambling and trying to make sense of this race, they all had pitches from my campaign explaining everything. <laughs> um, I had spent hours talking to New York Times reporters before my race. So it wasn't that they hadn't been talked to about this race. I, was, I had interviewed with New York Times reporters on multiple occasions probably adding up to hours. But they Yet they found never... themselves rushing to try to figure out who you were as if it was some great right. mystery after you won. I had talked to reporters about who I was, um, but no, there were decisions. They were decisions to not cover the race. It wasn't that, it, it really wasn't that it was this little thing that was under the radar. The story seems to have come from nowhere, but it also didn't. We... You know, before I, before the win, it wasn't like I had no social media presence. Obviously now things are completely different, but I had 50,000 people following me on Twitter before our win. And many of them 
were reporters from CNN, the New York Times, MSNBC. Um, people were following this race. Even even Chris Hayes, he he said uh, when when I had hopped on his show after after the win, he said on air, "I've been following your race for quite some time." People were paying attention to this race. I think that it was an issue of networks and probably an issue of the political establishment making active decisions not to cover it. And um, that honestly is fine because in a way, I think it was an advantage to my campaign because if I was getting coverage, um, I don't know how fair that coverage would be, especially given the wake of my win. <laughs> and it's not to say that I don't, I'm not here to say that the media has been unfair or wrong or all of these things, but, um, but I did go on one major network and that was Univision because, um, you know, my parents gave me the great gift of, of growing up bilingual. And I remember being taken so aback because after this whole week of insane back-to-back-to-back media, and frankly, many journalists asking the same exact questions, yeah. Univision, Jorge, not just Jorge Ramos, but multiple reporters at Univision that I had sat down with asked me, how do you define yourself? And that was the first time that a reporter, especially one in a, at a TV network, asked me that question. And what was your answer? I told them, I said, I'm an educator, I'm an organizer, and I am an unapologetic champion for working families. That's what I am. That is how I have spoken about myself to every single family in this district. And, you know, it's not to say they didn't ask questions about democratic socialism or things like that, but they gave me the opportunity to say, this is who I am, because that, that is who I am. That is the frame that I wake up every single morning and I think about myself in certain ways. Like I, the, the way that I think of myself is as an organizer. And when I wake up in the morning, I think of myself and, I, and the questions that guide my decision-making is what is best for the working people here? And um, no other network allows me to tell that story. And that's fine. You know what? Like, honestly, it's good. It's a good thing that if the political establishment wants to dismiss my win for, for superficial reasons, frankly, I mean, I think if someone is going to say that my win is due to demographic reasons, frankly, I think it's a form of intellectual laziness, Yeah. but let, let that happen. Let those people. It means they won't be on guard when more, when more, when more people come at them. (laughs) Let them not not learn the lessons because the people, the progressive movement the movement for working families, the movement for economic, social, and racial justice, the movement to empower working class people, the movement for Puerto Rico, the movement for Ferguson, the movement for criminal justice reform, those people are paying attention. Those people are saying, how did she actually win? You know, you're asking me this question. And, you know, DSA wants to know this question. And they authentically want to know because these are the communities that we built a coalition of. And I think that that's very important. I was very deliberate about coalition building the entire time. And so 
Um, DSA played a very important role, but so did Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. of Greater New York. So did Justice Democrats. So did a lot of unthanked labor and tenant organizers, Muslim community organizers, um, you know, young young Jewish organizations. Um, We were very deliberate about building a coalition of people that were on the forefront of activism and the progressive movement. They're not really getting the shine and they're not really getting the recognition that they deserve, but we won with a coalition. We didn't want win thanks to any one individual or any one group. And there was, there's, this, there's this interesting interplay because we couldn't have done it without any one group, but also the success is not due to any one group at the same time. You know, I could not have won without the support of Black Lives Matter of Greater New York. I could not have won without the support of DSA, but our success isn't entirely thanks to all, thanks to, to one, one individual group. Um, if there is, it would probably be Justice Democrats or a brand new Congress because they're the ones that convinced me to run in the first place. So I, wouldn't, I would not have chosen to run if they hadn't nudged me, but, um, but our, the success of our electoral organizing is, is because we were building a, a coalition. I want to ask you about your relationship to, to this coalition. There's this incredibly powerful moment in your televised, I think your single televised debate with Crowley, where he pledges to support you in the general election if you win the primary. And then he sets sort of, he, he tries to set a trap by asking if yeah. you will do the same if he wins. And your response is that you'll have to go back to the organized people who backed you, groups like DSA, and ask them, and and that you can't make that decision on your own. Tell me about about your response there and heading down the road as you quickly gain a lot of power and prestige, how you plan on remaining accountable yeah. to the organizations and organized communities that won this election for you. It was a really interesting moment because, you know, preparing for that debate that day, I was so nervous. My heart was, <laughs> I could have sworn he saw my heart beating out of my chest <laughs> on that on that set. So we had been thinking, I had been thinking, like, what is he going to go after me for? And um, it's so funny because all of the arguments that I was thinking he was going to kind of come at me for were actually all of the arguments that the alt-right is now <laughs> is now using. Um, which is hilarious because I I inadvertently prepared for all of these arg- arguments a month ago. I just didn't know. Uh, oh, who like it about from. about Westchester. Yeah, yeah, about how like I went to. You're like, uh, they're really small houses away. in Westchester too. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just uh, Scarsdale. <laughs> it's so funny, but but um, but anyways, uh, I was not anticipating him to ask that question. That was not a question at all that I thought he was going to ask. Um, and so that answer was, uh, it was not prepared and it was very much an organic moment. And I was able to come up with that answer so quickly because I personally did the work of all this coalition building. I didn't send anybody. It wasn't like I, it wasn't even that I had like brought their organizers onto quote unquote, my team or anything. I physically had to go in person with all of these organizations, even with DSA, 
BSA, I had to go to the Bronx chapter. I had to go to the Queens chapter. <laughs> I had to go to the citywide chapter. Not even that. I had to, I had to actually had to go to the Queens electoral group, the Bronx electoral group, then the Queens general, then the Bronx general, then, uh, then the citywide. It's a process. And it's a process. <laughs> and that was just for one organization. You know, I had to meet with Muslims for progress. I had to meet with, oh my gosh, our revolution, similar. You know, I had to go to Bronx, our revolution. They were on board because I've been organizing with them for a very long time. But I had to go to the Queens, our revolution chapter, which one of the Queens, our revolution chapters was like a little too concerned with what the machine thought. So they refused to endorse, but there was a second Queens chapter. I mean, it was a mess, but the benefit of it was that, um, was that, I had to personally make my case and personally coalition build. And this question had come up before. I had been asked by these groups. And um, so when I was asked that question live on this televised, televised debate, I knew that there were people that would, that would not just, not a, it's not about being upset, but that would take serious issue with me making any kind of unilateral decision live on television for them because I was hyper aware that, and I always described it as such that my move, that my candidacy was a movement candidacy and it operates in a very unusual way because, um, you know, when I first started this race and when I first started doing all this work, I thought about how people just do this for themselves, you know, like, like, I still can't believe that someone will wake up and say, I want to be the congressman or I want to be a senator. And then they, they pretty much organize their entire campaigns around that person's individual identity, basically saying the campaign is I'm the campaign. The case that the campaign makes is I'm the best person for the job, which. And this person looks in the mirror I and think, says, I was born for this job. Yeah. I was born for this, or they'll say, I'm the best person for this job. And then they literally try to organize thousands of people around the rallying cry of I'm awesome. <laughs> and that is not, <laughs> for me, first of all, that's way too much pressure. <laughs> second of all, second of all, I don't think that that's what people really resonate with. Even when you look at how people rallied around, for example, Barack Obama, um, regardless of how you feel about his politics, it wasn't that people, it wasn't just him. It was what he represented to so many people. And um, so for me on that stage, I knew that I represented a movement and I knew that I represented a movement that operated with input. And especially in that moment, there were a lot of people that were so upset with how things were operating in New York. And to commit on live television, I think it would, I knew that in our campaign, it would have introduced a wave of fatalism because people would have said, well, what is this for? She's just going to endorse, you know, a lobbyist pact, no matter, or lobbyist, a real estate lobbyist backed candidate no matter what we say so and he wanted that what, as part of the race he was actually concerned about which was for speaker of course of course and the thing is is that 
you know, I, I'm organizing accountable to those issues. And, and after, you know, I got a lot of heat from the quote unquote establishment afterwards, but the only people that were upset about that were people that already worked for the Democratic Party. I actually got a lot of respect from voters from that. And um, it was funny. I literally went, I went to the bodega like a week or two after the debate. And I was, my cousin was in the bodega and he's a groundskeeper um, in the area. And there, he was with some friends and they watched the debate. They watched it. And, uh, and everyone was like, that was gangster. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it got a lot of respect. It got a lot of respect because I've never seen anything like it. People are sick of it. And there is this illusion amongst, I think, Democratic incumbents that New Yorkers love them, that New Yorkers love the Democratic establishment. They really do think Just because they find themselves reelected. Yeah, because they're reelected every single time. They actually think that they are beloved. And it's a hostage situation because no one is going to vote for the Republican Party, but there is such tight control over who the Democratic nominee is in any given situation that New Yorkers are forced to vote for whatever Democrat is on the ballot in November, especially because our primary system is so broken. It is so underreported on deliberately. You know, people don't want attention paid to Democratic primaries and Democratic primaries are the election in, especially in New York City. So, um, so anyways, um, I just think that that moment was just, I was just doing what the movement asked of me in that moment. And how do you plan on maintaining that that relationship of accountability down the road because you're already a rock star and it's only going to get bigger. I am committed to continuing my grassroots organizing. And um, in fact, just yesterday, uh, just yesterday, we had a meeting in this little banquet hall in Queens with all of our organizers and volunteers. We probably have like a, a core, core group of 150 um, in our congressional district. Like that's probably the core, those people organize and, and do a lot of work with others, but we have like a really core committed group of about 150 people um, that show up all the time. And so yesterday, you know, we had this little, like we rented out this little tiny um, like banquet hall out in Jackson Heights. And we met. And while there are all of these news articles coming out, like, what's her next move? What is she going to do next? I don't make a whole lot of these decisions alone. Um, You know, in fact, that first week after winning was very, very difficult for me personally, because it was the longest amount of time that I, I had spent a away it was the most amount of time I had spent a away from the district but b away from that constant communication with our organizers and that was emotionally difficult for me because it's like a constant conversation you know uh it's I'm always talking with our folks we have 
all these different platforms. Like we have WhatsApp groups um, and our campaign, one of the ways that we had organized, we actually have since moved away from WhatsApp because it turned into a nightmare, but, um, <laughs> but the way that we had organized uh, and it was really good for rapid response was that we were all on WhatsApp and we had like all these different group chats. Um, so we had an all supporter group chat. We had a field organizing group chat. We had a press team group chat. We had a Spanish organizing group chat. Um, we had multilingual group chats and people even took it upon themselves to make their own group chats that I still don't even know about. And so, um, so on any given day, I could fire up the supporter chat and see what people were talking about and see what the sentiment was. And I would pop in with my own thoughts here and there. Um, same thing with all of our other groups. And so it was really easy for me to keep a pulse on things um, because not only was I on the ground, not only was I knocking doors myself, but I would listen and see the stories that other people were sharing constantly. And so uh, that first few days, um, you know, after, after the win, it was, it was very strange because it was like really 14 hour back-to-back -back media days. So I didn't have that opportunity to stay in that context. But now, you know, now it's, we're, now that the dust is settling a little bit, we're able to recommit ourselves. So like just yesterday we had a meeting um, and we had 150 people and we asked two questions. We had everybody break, we all broke out into smaller groups and we said, A, uh, what should, our campaign's focus be in the next three months? What should that focus be? And then B, what specific solutions can we implement to address prior weaknesses or injustices on our campaign? Because every time you have a group of people that come together, there are going to be systematic injustices and systematic weaknesses that occur. It's just a fact of, it's just part of bringing people together um, and so if we're conscious about them and we, we actively try to think of and implement solutions on a regular basis, we can avoid breakdown, communication or organizational breakdown. So we got together and we just said, we're just going to talk about these two questions. And we had a hundred and, you know, yesterday it was about, um, cause it's, I think it's like a holiday weekend or something. I don't know. Time is blurring, but <laughs> basically we had about, uh, I think six to 70 people show up um, and we just had these conversations and we had this this these conversations as a group and you know surprisingly but also unsurprisingly there was a lot of consensus about things even though we, we broke up into 10 different groups but almost all 10 groups talked about the same thing and so um, you know I think in terms of maintaining that for me I actually don't think that campaigns ever end. Um, and I don't, there's the negative way and then there's the positive way. The negative way is that in an environment of big money, in a post-Citizens United world, it feels like the transactional type of campaigning never stops. And that is exhausting because I don't wanna see campaign ads all year round. But on the flip side, from my side as an organizer, I don't think the organizing ever ends. Yeah. So we may have just won this really big primary and people may think that November is a sure thing, but we have our own individual internal goals. You know, I want to make sure that, you know, I would knock on doors in the Bronx 
and I would go into full apartment buildings, eight story apartment buildings, and there would be five registered Democrats inside because of New York's system of disenfranchisement, because it's so easily, it's easy to either become not registered where you live or, um, or unaffiliated or, or just no one wants you to vote anyway. So I have my own internal goals. I want to be registering thousands of people in my community. I want to have a really strong turnout district. And right now we have we had one of the lowest turnout districts in America. On election day, our campaign grew turnout 68%. 68% more people voted in our primary than in the last off-year midterm primary. Uh, in 2014. And I think I think that's an important opportunity for left challengers everywhere is turning low turnout, which is yep. such a bad thing about the state of our democracy, exploiting that to our advantage and growing the electorate and taking these seats and catching the people who occupy them unawares. Absolutely. I think that the idea that we're going to, that we should focus on this middle is just so, it's such a waste of resources to me because here's the thing that middle never decides until like the week before the election it never decides until the week before the election i was shocked the white suburban women that uh hillary clinton was banking her campaign on well yeah but also it's it, it's just like in general the type of people who sit on the fence in anything and are like, you know, hmm, Trump like or not Trump. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's one of those, those things where if you don't know who you're voting for the week before the election, mm-hmm. no amount of resources is going to make you make that decision earlier. It's just a thing of human behavior. It just like is like what you need to do is you need to rally and expand. There were people who had never voted before who were committed to voting for me months before the election um, because we were speaking to them because they knew that we cared. Because like we actually knew that we cared because I didn't do this, this nonsense of only, only pull up your triple prime voters, aka the people who have only voted in the last three primary elections, only talk to those people those people sometimes are the primary fence sitters <laughs> um, because there are a lot of people who are committed to the act of voting, but it's not necessarily that they're in the pocket of, of one person, or sometimes they are in the pocket of the establishment. So I knew that triple primes were, was actually like not my first priority. I knew it was my second or third priority. What happens is that if you build your base, you build your audience, you build your, your little army of organizers, what happens is nine times out of 10, voting is a social decision. Um, we have the platform. We have what we're fighting for. Our platform is going to rally those first people, the people who are activated, who care about Medicare for all, who, who care about tuition-free public college, for which those are voting and animating issues. They're going to be on board first if you take those positions. And they, those people care enough to, to actually organize their friends and family. And um, And so that's what we did in the beginning. But the people who are sitting on the fence, they, what they, nine times out of 10, what they do is that they will look up the week before the election and they say, hmm, what's gone on? Who's, 
like what what's the tally what's the score and a lot of those people sometimes decide based on who they think will win instead of based on who they want to win I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is October, The Story of the Russian Revolution by China Mieville, which is now out in paperback. On the centenary of the Russian Revolution, China Mieville tells the extraordinary story of this pivotal moment in history. In February of 1917, Russia was a backwards autocratic monarchy, mired in an unpopular war. By October, after not one but two revolutions, it had become the world's first worker state, straining to be at the vanguard of global revolution. How did this unimaginable transformation take place? In a panoramic sweep, stretching from St. Petersburg and Moscow to the remotest villages of a sprawling empire, Mieville uncovers the catastrophes, intrigues, and inspirations of 1917 in all their passion, drama, and strangeness. Intervening in long-standing historical debates, but told with the reader new to the topic especially in mind, here is a breathtaking story of humanity at its greatest and most desperate of a turning point for civilization that still resonates loudly today. October, The Story of the Russian Revolution by China Mieville, out now in paperback from Verso Books. Senator Tammy Duckworth recently said that that your approach won't won't work at the heartland, that the strategy you're describing is somehow Mm Bronx-specific. She said, I don't think you can go too far to the left and still win in the Midwest. Coming from a Midwestern state, I think you need to be able to talk to the industrial Midwest. You need to be able to listen to the people there in order to win an election nationwide. And then I thought your response was so excellent. Um, you listed all of the states that Bernie won, and many of which in the Midwest, many of which were then lost in the general election. And you said, asked, what's the plan to prevent a repeat? Yeah, we lost them. We lost them. We lost. And... One of the cases that I had made on the ground, too, is, listen, we've lost the House. We've lost the Senate. We've lost the presidency. Are we going, are we as voters, because I was talking to voters the whole time. I'm not trying to convince the establishment of anything. I'm talking to voters. I'm talking not just to voters, but I'm talking to people on the ground, too. People would tell me that they were undocumented or people would tell me that they weren't yet a U.S. citizen. I still took the time to talk to them um, because those people have families too. And I, I spoke with these folks and when I was talking to, to us, because ultimately our responsibility is as voters. As voters, we are the decision makers. We are the decision makers. We are the ones who are deciding the future, not anybody else. And I was always talking to voters and we're saying, listen, we've lost a thousand seats. We've lost the House. We've lost the Senate. We have lost the presidency in an election that we most certainly should not have lost. And are we, as voters, are we going to continue to commit to voting for the same people, the same strategy and the same plan because we haven't changed our game plan as a party. That's why I, that question was legitimate because 
there really seems to be almost no no change in our plan um, on how it like what have we learned from 2016? How are we doing things different differently from 2016? They tried out their strategy. The experiment's been run. It was a failure. Exactly. And that's the case that I made. And I said, so as voters, are you as a voter? And I put the personal responsibility on us, not on not on the establishment, because they're going to vote and they're going to run the way that they want to run. As voters, we have the responsibility to say, are we going to choose to continue this course that has proven to lose literally everything? I think that's a really important point. I think people get into the framework of sort of demanding that the establishment change course when we really need to replace the establishment and change course ourselves. Listen, they're not going to change course. They're not, unless, unless they say it and like start walking the walk, you have to take it for face value. If your incumbent continues to take, continues to be primarily finance, like my opponent, my, my incumbent, so 99% of his financing came from corporations, lobbyists, and big money donations. Less than 1%, like it was like 0.75 of a percent of his contributions came from small dollar donations. And I had the flip, you know, I had, I had the flip side. Um, and if our incumbent, if you have an incumbent that continues to take corporate, that continues to be overwhelmingly financed by corporations and corporate money, who whose messaging, if they sound, if, if your incumbent is talking the same way today, fundamentally, and saying the same things that they were saying in September of 2016, you should be concerned. You should be concerned. We should all be concerned. Because if the Trump presidency has not jolted a person into changing their fundamental approach, then they're not going to change. I think some folks have, you know, it's not to say that it's not to say burn the whole thing to the ground, but because I do think that there are legitimately some folks that are having a change of heart that are really kind of seeing like, wow, I, you know, this was mistaken, but there are a lot of folks that really think that the only difference in their strategy and frankly, I think that this was kind of my, this was, to be honest, this, this is what Crowley did as well. Uh, I, I received his mailers. He didn't take me off his mailing list. So I have 10 of these mailers in my home that with my name on them. Um, and a lot of them have Trump's face on them. It's just like, this guy's scary. This guy's scary. Trust me to fight him. Yeah. And that's it. He did that during yeah. your debate yeah, too. That's, yeah, exactly. That that was the primary message. If the only difference, the, and the, as a matter of fact, that there is no difference because that was the strategy going into the general election. The strategy going into the general election is Trump is a terrifying demagogue and he's going to be a disaster for our democracy. Guess what? Trump is a terrifying demagogue and he is a disaster for our democracy. But we lost the election on that narrative. Yeah, and he's also a product of our democracy, to, unfortunately. It just feels like a lot of people in our, a lot of the, the incumbents in the Democratic Party are on real autopilot. And I'm, and it's not, you know, 
I think that there's, there was this real attempt to get me to just really just rip apart the establishment and create this contentious antagonistic fight in the wake of my win. And I rejected that because A, that was a narrative that, that some other was trying to advance, but that was not my plan. And I, I'm not going to allow this movement to get hijacked by an energy of antagonism when what we are really trying to advance is a positive and progressive vision for America's future. So I'm not going to get bogged down in this democratic infighting, not because I'm trying to do the establishment a favor, but because we have a movement to build. And I'm trying to stay focused on what we're trying to accomplish. And, um, and so it's, this is to say, I'm not trying to like, like this is not about personally gunning after it, but it, it goes back to the same thing. If your incumbent is saying and doing the same things now that they were doing two years ago, you should be concerned. A lot of, of people hope that your win, which is getting so much attention everywhere, will ins- both inspire and bolster this new wave of socialist and left challengers. W- where do you see the movement going from here? And specifically, what upcoming races are you most interested in? What I'm looking forward to and where I think there's an enormous opportunity is to build our own force. And you can start from anywhere. You don't necessarily have to capture a congressional seat. You can. There are plenty of seats that I think there's enormous opportunity in. Um, but I think I personally, you know, and I come from an activist space. There are a lot of people who are cynical and disaffected and believe that electoral organizing is not worth it. And I just really hope that those folks with those attitudes, I understand them. I really do understand the cynicism around it, but I just beg a lot of those people to reconsider because it's actually not the invanquishable behemoth that people like to pretend it is. The reason money in politics has been so influential is because it's making up for a lot of laziness on the ground. A lot of these quote unquote unassailable political machines are shelves. They do not have the really strong turnout. In some areas they do, you know, in some places, for example, like Chicago is known for a notorious machine. There are some people in Chicago that can snap their fingers and turn out precincts of 40,000 people and, you know, and that add up to 40,000 people. But but by and large, these machines oh, are decrepit. They're decrepit. And let me tell you something. I mean, whether this gets me in trouble or not, a lot of these Democratic, especially state Democratic parties are asleep at the wheel. They've been kind of taken over as like these little legal forms of money laundering units. And that is what they've been used for. That was certainly the case in my backyard. The Queens County Democratic Party was really, it was seen as so powerful. But the reason it was seen as powerful is because lobbyists used it to kind of wash money into local elected political campaigns. But they had they didn't have bodies. And through the court and system, so where you can which is really bizarre. Yeah. Yes, and the court system, which is a whole other episode. But if you are a person that can mobilize people and bodies, you can you can really make change. 
I think that's the real lesson from the 2016 campaign as well. So a lot of people were kind of cynical afterwards because of Debbie Wasserman Schultz or whatever. But I think the real story is that Bernie, who I think initially wasn't even running to win, frankly, um, caught the system unawares and exposed the emperor as wearing no clothes and almost knocked out the the coronated standard bearer out of nowhere because people yep because they're actually not as powerful as as we like to think they are yeah and what i think is really important to communicate is that most power operates on the illusion i told the story in fact on the campaign trail um all the time when i talked and here's the thing this whole campaign 90% of this campaign was organized in living room. Literally, I, I, you know, I worked in a restaurant. I operated, I started this campaign out of a Trader Joe's bag, for real. It's not some quaint little story, it's the truth. And after work, I would pull out a change of clothes from my Trader Joe's bag. I would have my little cards, I would have my little clipboard. And there would be one person that would be interested and what they would do is that they would invite their friends and their neighbors to a living room and to their living rooms. And I would take the subway, I'd take the train to that person's living room. And I just talk to people 10 at a time for eight months. That is what, that is what my campaign was. That is what my campaign was for eight months. And um, those little groups of five, 10 people at a time is what they eventually became the little army of hardcore organizers in our campaign and the consistency of that work. I cannot tell you how important it is. And what the story that I always told at these little, little living rooms was the story of the wizard of Oz, because that is power. You know, we, we built our little ragtag group and we walked down this yellow brick road and we get to the Emerald city and they didn't want to let us in. So we knocked down the door, which was, pretty much us getting on the ballot. <laughs> so we knocked down the door and we walked in and there's this huge intimidating behemoth, but it's really just a guy behind a curtain. And once people, once that truth is exposed and once people realize it's one little guy behind one little curtain with a big microphone, <laughs> that is with a big microphone determining the fates of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people then you realize that it's actually not not too crazy to change that and that you actually can change it with a small group of ragtag people, which is what we did. Um, and there are so many places like that because while I wish this wasn't the truth, it is the truth that the Democratic Party for a long time, for a very, very long time, has not invested resources in organizing in on, on the ground. And so because of that, we were able to exploit a lot of openings. And, you know, I think, I hope that my win shows what I think the true strength of the party should be, or any party that is accountable to working people should be. And it is that, you know, one of the things that we did is that I knew that there is this culture of consultants and there's a cottage industry of electoral consultants. And what they do is that they recommend candidates spend money on things, not that work, but they're commission based. So 
I know that there are a lot of consultants that make 10% on every television ad that they place for a candidate. So what are they going to recommend? That's just, that is just the market-based incentive of, of a lot of this, this industry. And here's what we know wins. Knocking doors wins. Phone banking wins. Contact voter, direct voter contact wins elections but it doesn't make people money. And so we knew that that was a dynamic. I knew that he was gonna spend money on the mailers. I knew that he was gonna spend money on the TV ads, but I had a hunch that he wasn't gonna spend a whole lot of money on field um, because you can't make a really big commission on field and it's a big pain in the butt. So um, I think that where we win is on the ground. Anybody who wants to run a winning grassroots campaign needs to be counting how many doors that they knocked and they need to be counting their IDs. Their IDs is, you know, without getting into the jargon, you count your ones and twos. Um, basically you make contact with a voter and you rank that voter on a scale of one to five every time. Strong support or leaning support for you. And then five is like strong support for your opponent and three is in the middle, undecided. And, you know, we counted, 15,900 ones and twos, and 15,900 people went out and voted for us on election day. It was not a coincidence. You add up the ones and twos to get to your win number. You just count your votes. Just count your votes. That's all you got to do. Just count your votes. And there's a, there's a whole lot more involved in that. But at the end of the day, you know, and, and I was amazed because for me as an organizer, it's like, yeah, you count how many people are voting for you. And this makes a lot of sense. Um, I said, I remember I was talking to a to a consultant, or not a consultant, but I was talking to like, um, I was talking to like this person that had been involved in a lot of other campaigns before. Um, and, well, he wasn't a consultant, but he, he, he like like an operative. had run a pack. Yeah. And I said, so is this how everybody um, runs their campaigns? And he was like, no. And I was like, well, what do other <laughs> Why? people do? And he was like, yeah, and he was like, they run television ads and they run a lot of radio and they try to get like, and they get maybe like five to 10% of their win number. So like, if you need 15,000 people to vote for you, you count 1,500 people. And I was like, and how do they know, how does a person know if they're going to win? And they're like, they don't, they just spend a ton of money on TV. You do a really light amount of field and then you just like pray. <laughs> and I was like, that's how a $3 million congressional campaign is run. And they're like, yeah, pretty much. And it's like, yeah, this is why we're losing. <laughs> like, oh, that's why I think it's important for us to open the hood on this stuff. Um, because there's things that we think are influential. And even for us, you know, our digital, the, the good thing about digital is that you can count on, on digital. On TV, if you pay somebody to run... I don't know, a commercial on Univision or to run a commercial on NBC, you don't get any numbers. You get like an estimated audience number because that's how much they charge you. They'll be like, oh, we'll charge you $10,000 for this ad because X amount of people watch a Yankee game on Saturday night. But they don't tell you how many X amount of people have TiVo, how many X amount of people mute their TV while they go make a sandwich during a commercial break. Um, but when you organize on Facebook or when you organize on Twitter or any digital platform, 
they tell you how many people watched your content, or even on YouTube, they'll say this amount of people actually watched this through the very end. This amount of people turned it off. These are the amount of people that you reached in district. And so it's all about quantifying. And knowing whether you're getting your money's worth, especially if you don't have that much money. I mean, I think shoestring campaigns great because if you're running them intelligently, you're only going after the highest impact activity. Looking ahead, uh, knock on wood, to you entering Congress, though uh, I'm feeling fairly confident about November, but don't want to jinx you. The right has really successfully used groups like the, the House Freedom Caucus to push their agenda. Do you think that the Progressive Caucus, which has been much lower profile for a long time, but has a significant and growing size, can do the same for the left? I mean, I think there's potential. It all depends on how unified that caucus is. The thing that gives the Freedom Caucus power is not their size, but it's their cohesion. And the, right now, the Progressive Caucus is a little like, it's, it's bigger than the Freedom Caucus, actually. I think it's like 70 or 80 people. Um, I think the Freedom Caucus might be a bit smaller, but I could be mistaken. And, um, but the thing is, is like, sometimes they vote together, sometimes they don't. A lot of it is just being in the caucus is important. But to signal I, to your voters, like, let's say you're my congressman, David, exactly. Cicilli- David Cicilline, to signal that you're uh, a progressive. Exactly. So some people use that as, as a signal. But the thing that gives a caucus power is that you can operate as a block vote in order to get things done. And um, the question is, how willing are, even if you can carve out a sub portion a sub-caucus of the Progressive Caucus. Even if you could carve out that, even a smaller block, but one that operates as a block, then you can generate real power. And so um, I think with that, it's just really about, we'll see. I really, you know, as, as unapologetic and as strong as I am in my messaging and my beliefs, I personally, just my style is that I'm a consensus builder. I like to think that I'm persuasive. <laughs> so. Um, so I, I usually am able to make a, like a, I, I'm usually able to make the pragmatic case for re- doing really ambitious things. Yeah. And so um, not to say that I can carry a caucus on my back or anything, but I think that there's a willingness right now. We'll see if that willingness is still there in January and because, you know, these cycles change and sentiments change so much, but um but I think that if you can even carve out a caucus of 10, 30 people, it does not take a lot um, if you operate as a block vote to really make strong demands on things. Your victory makes me more confident than ever that the left will will one day in the maybe medium term be the political majority in this country. But But so many of our political institutions are so radically undemocratic, and it seems very likely to me that a conservative minority in the coming years will use institutions like the Supreme Court, like the Senate, to block the popular will. Political scientist David Ferris recently published a book laying out a program of of measures that could constitutionally democratize the American system. That includes expanding the number of seats on the Supreme Court, granting D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood. Obviously, the future of Puerto Rico should be a decision made by the people of Puerto Rico, but 
I, I would welcome those two Senate seats as as, as someone in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and in passing federal legislation that would require states to make it easier rather than harder to vote, do you think that it's time to begin a discussion about more radical but but entirely constitutional measures to democratize the system? Absolutely, absolutely. I I don't even think that it's it's unfortunate what is being called radical nowadays. You know, enfranchising Americans that already have the constitutional right to vote, radical, like really, (laughs) this is where we're at. (laughs) Um, But it is where we're at. And so I'm entirely supportive of it. I think that right now, if you have a deadline for voter registration in your state like mine, that is an artifice. Because with our technology, there's no reason that that should be the case. So I think that that's, you know, I th- we absolutely do need to do that. For me personally, you know, I'm, as a, as a Puerto Rican woman, I'm looking towards my elders and I'm looking towards really trying to have an authentic conversation and, and host an authentic conversation on the status of Puerto Rico. But, um, but I do believe that, I do believe that the very fact that we have literally millions of people who are American citizens that to this day are disenfranchised and denied the right to vote in presidential elections is so foundationally wrong. One of the most premier injustices in our democracy today. It's not just Puerto Rico. This is U.S. Virgin Islands. This is Guam. This is, you know, this is every United States territory, which are their colonies of the United States. Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. And, you know, the fact that you can be born in the United States as as an American citizen and denied the right to vote and denied federal representation, that's why 4,000 people died in Puerto Rico. I guarantee you, you know, and again, I'm not making a stance on statehood, but what I will say is that I guarantee you is if Puerto Rico had votes in a presidential election, if they did have two senators, if they did have representation, 4,000 people would not have died. I guarantee you. And it's gross and it's cynical, but it's true. And if they were independent, perhaps 4,000 people wouldn't have died. But the fundamental political status of Puerto Ricans and, and people who are colonized by the United States makes them second-class citizens. And um, it's not radical to make people full persons, to make all U.S. citizens full persons in the eyes of the law. Um, but we absolutely do, I think, you know, every, every, what is it, 30 years or so, we tend to introduce, we're, we're kind of on a timeline, every 30 years or so, or so, we tend to amend the United States Constitution. And um, time's up, you know, we're at, we're right at that timeline. We're at right about 30, 40 years last, last amendment we passed was, um, was right around then. Do you want to um, make sort of a if if you want to kind of sum sum anything up before I before I let you go? We've got a bunch of primaries between now and September ish, and there is room for more upsets. Oh, and when you talk when you asked before specific congressional races that I'm looking at, 
I mean, statewide, I'm also looking at races in New York City. I'm very excited about Julia Salazar. She's incredible. She's amazing. Um, I'm very excited on a national scale. I'm very excited about um, Kanyela Ng running out in Hawaii. I'm very excited about folks like Brent Welder in Kansas um, for a mix of reasons. You know, some I think are like Brent. Brent can win. He can win. Um, and he can win not only his primary, but he can win a, in a red to blue district on a progressive vision. And I think that's so exciting. Um, but additionally, I think folks like with Kanyela, for example, Corey Bush in, in Ferguson, I just really want a lot of people to see those candidates as legitimate because my whole entire race, I was dismissed as illegitimate. I was dismissed as not real, you know? And that to me was difficult. I triggered the first, before even the win, I triggered the first primary election in 14 years in our community. We hadn't had a primary election in 14 years because in New York, you have to collect thousands and thousands of petitions in a manner that is almost exclusively inaccessible to working people. And so we hadn't had an election in even 14 years. I triggered the first primary election in 14 years in our community, and I was still not seen as legitimate. We had made history before even the election day, and I was still not seen as a legitimate candidate. And so I, at the very least, want people to see Cori Bush as a real contender because she is a real contender. I want people to see Julia Salazar as the real deal because she is the real deal. And um, no one is a fringe candidate, you know, in terms of like, these folks are not fringe candidates, they're real candidates, they're bottom up organizers. And if no one else wants to give them a platform, I'm happy to do so. So um, I think that's it, you know, go out, organize. That's, that's the end all be all of our democracy. Well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who just won the Democratic primary in New York's 14th Congressional District. Next up, I'm speaking to Intercept DC Bureau Chief Ryan Grimm, who extensively covered Ocasio-Cortez's challenge well before most outlets had a clue what was going on. Ryan Grimm, welcome to The Dig. Uh, Great to be here. Even the New York Times credited The Intercept with contributing to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's win. What role can and should and did left media play in this race and in the broader left political insurgency underway? You know, there's kind of two ways to look at that. One is, you know, what's the what's the ultimate potential here and how scalable is it? And then the other is, you know, what can left media do, you know, on a, a district by district or race by race case? And so, in, you know, in, in this case, uh, what what the kind of left alternative media was able to do was to shine a spotlight on the race um, to say this is this is a this is something real that is happening. Uh, here is who the incumbent is. Here is 
who his, you know, here's who his donors are, here's what his history is, uh, and here is who his challenger is. Uh, and and by putting the spotlight on the race, it gives it then gives people the chance to make a decision: is this is this a race I want to get in, involved in, uh, or is it? And and then separately from that, but somewhat related, you the left does let me do real journalism on the race to, um, you know, uncover new things about um, both candidates, um, uh, to, you know, to do investigations into, into the background of the incumbent or, or, or to just follow the race, um, you know, on a day-to-day basis to, uh, you know, just keep people updated about what's happening in, in ways that, that just wouldn't without anybody writing about it. When we were talking earlier, you pointed out that I think both both journalists have a limited amount of time and space and obviously readers have limited bandwidth. So you can't emphasize in the same way every single left political insurgency underway across the entire country. You have to choose. And in for a variety of reasons, Ocasio-Cortez's challenge to, to Crowley was really a sensible choice to prioritize, something to stand in for for the broader conflict that's taking place. Right. It was easy to nationalize, you know, it's because it's a, uh, a longtime incumbent who, you know, has taken a lot of corporate money and who has pushed uh, the, the party towards, you know, more corporate friendly politics. Uh, and also importantly is was a heartbeat away, so to speak, from uh, being Speaker of the House. And so not only does it tell a, a big, broad story. Uh, but if he went down, it, it would have a dynamic effect on on ha- on the House leadership, and you're al- you're already seeing that. You know, he because he was next, you know, essentially next in line for Speaker. Uh, him getting knocked out shakes everything up. You know, and you now have the New York Times editorial page calling for basically the entire leadership to step aside, and you have Barbara Lee of all people. Um, Making moves to uh, run for his spot, uh, you know. So it the sole no vote against the authorization for the use of military force. Yeah, one of the one of the toughest and most progressive members of Congress. Not the kind of iconoclast that people think of when they think of leadership, but uh, Ocasio Cortez, you know, Democratic, you know, establishment leadership. Ocasio Cortez uh, kind of floated her almost half jokingly in an article in the in the Washington Post when she was asked if she'd support Pelosi. She said, no, no I wouldn't. And Dave Weigel said, well, who, you know, who do you like? And she said, oh, it's Barbara Lee running. <laughs> and I pointed out uh, on Twitter that uh, Barbara Lee actually did run uh, for leadership in the past and lost uh, by only one vote to Linda Sanchez. Huh. So it's not crazy uh, to think of her in leadership. Um, and other members of Congress have actually Floated her to me as well when I've been asking um, who could the left put up because there's there there's almost a stronger progressive bench in the Senate uh, with forty some odd members than there is um, in the House with with their more than hundred um, and so now she, and now Barbara Lee says she's going to run and so you know if, if you can only prioritize a few races you know you want to um, go with the ones that are telling a national story and also can have the biggest impact, um, both in kind of the example it sets and uh, in the kind of 
um, you know, foundational disruption that it can cause. Left outlets sort of had this story to themselves alongside, a, you know, a bit of uh, cursory local pro forma, local reporting that happens in New York with any race. Why after Trump winning the presidency, Bernie Sanders almost snatching the Democratic nomination, why, how in in 2018 do mainstream political journalists not see this kind of thing coming, or at least not think that it's possible? I think part of it comes from the number of insurgent races that have been run against the, the New York machine in the past and, and, and have almost always come up short. Um, now, I think there was, a, obviously, I think there was a, the writings on the wall that this was, had the potential to be different, but you're taking a gamble uh, if, uh, if you, um, you know, strike at the king and miss, so to speak. So, you know, if you cover a, you know, if you sympathetically cover a, an insurgent campaign and it falls short, you look a little bit like a clown to your readers, like you don't have any idea what's actually going on. And so you lose, lose credibility, which is the number one thing you need as a journalist. But uh, also, you know, problematically for you, if the incumbent wins, they, they might try to ice you out. And so to the extent that beat reporters need access to these uh, officials, it can, it can damage that. I think it was A16, if I remember correctly, somewhere deep in the A section, that Bernie Sanders' presidential announcement was was run in the New York Times. <laughs> right, but access journalism is a funny thing because uh, all of the you know reporters who have maintained access to Joe Crowley now have access to a former, a soon to be former member of Congress, and are iced out, at least for now, of the, the you know the incoming member of Congress. You know they, they didn't have her number, or have her email, they didn't know who was who the people on her team were. Um, and so that, you know, that that can be, you know, so you got to be careful to not be caught on the wrong end of it. I want to ask you more about the, the Democratic establishment conversation in Washington right now. Are are they coming to grips with what's happening or are they making up explanations that are convenient for them? Both. Um, and, and, you know, if, if you're the left, uh, maybe you want them coming up with uh explanations yeah. <laughs> that are convenient for them <laughs> yeah, totally. uh, be, you know th- there are definitely st- some who are studying it carefully and trying to figure out exactly what happened and what it means for them um but for the ones who are going to look at look at it and say well this is demographic brown woman want a brown district nothing i need to worry about you know, they're going to be caught um just as surprised on one of their primary night, um, as Joe Crowley was. Do you see this as giving a lift? Well, I imagine you do, but oh, so I'll rephrase that as what sort of lift do you see this giving <laughs> to other left challengers across the country and Cynthia Nixon in New York in particular? Right. And so if you think about you know power as a mixture of illusion and reality, uh, what this has done is it has given everybody who's paying attention to politics a a broadened and expanded sense of what's possible. And so on Monday and Tuesday, people would have looked at uh, Cynthia Nixon race in New York, um, Zephyr Teachout for AG, Kerry Harris for Senate in Delaware, for example, 
and said, these are great candidates. It just can't happen. You know, the machine's too strong. The incumbent's too strong or what, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now people are thinking, to me, it seems like this is not doable, but I didn't think Ocasio-Cortez could win. And so maybe I'm wrong. And so why not, why not take a shot at it? Um, and so it certainly is opening uh, possibilities that, that weren't seen to be there last week, early last week. One thing that The Intercept's reporting really highlighted was how Ocasio-Cortez combined grassroots organizing and a left-wing program on the one hand, which is what you'd expect from a left-wing candidate, with this merciless assault on the Queens and New York political machines. Why do you think mm-hmm. the two went so well together? And is this something, this kind of combinate, this kind of good government socialism that you think could work elsewhere? What I really liked about the approach that they took, and I think, yes, I think it certainly could. And I think incumbency has its disadvantages now because they throw all the bums out uh, yeah. mentality among a lot, a lot of voters who um, will say, you know what, uh, this guy's had his shot. Let's try something new. And it really, and the analysis doesn't need to go a lot further than that. Um, what, what I, but I, what I like that they did is that they approached the machine, not from a process, purely good government. You know, we need to have, you know, the, when the machines were last overthrown by kind of progressive reformers uh, 50 plus years ago, um, you know, before they kind of reconstituted themselves, it, it, w- it was on a, this whole process is corrupt. Let's create a clean process platform rather than what uh, Ocasio-Cortez said, which was that this machine process doesn't work for us. It's, it's, it's designed to work for other people, you know, and, and, it exploits us for the benefit of a few. And, in, and so, in other words, they challenged the substance of what the machine was doing rather than the, the process of it. Because in a lot of ways, if a machine is delivering, then good for the machine. Yeah, if, know, if, a, machine, a, if a machine works, both. like, uh, what's the problem? Right. Which is a problem with a lot of, like, liberal like neoliberal technocratic anti-machine stuff that you also often mm-hmm. see in cities is it just assumes that people are going to be innately anti-machine, but if they're getting patronage that's functioning for them, right. what problems should they have with the machine? Right. And patronage is a good thing. Like <laughs> what is patronage? What does patronage mean? Does it mean like the, you know, people who live in the district get jobs, they get their trash picked up, they get problems solved when they, when they need them solved, they get, you know, they're, they're, they get their uh, pension issues, uh, handled, you know, it's the, the line between, you know, uh, government, good constituent service and the machine and machine behavior is, is th- those are thin lines and, and they can thin and overlapping lines. It's, it's when the machine gets metastasized and becomes thoroughly corrupt uh, and parasitic that it needs to be dest- destroyed. Yes. And so Crowley's machine, in, it had run a foreclosure mill, you know, Instead of like saving the homes of constituents, it was literally profiting off of foreclosures and evictions of constituents. Like one of the great constituent services that uh, lawsuits do is to try to help constituents, you know, fend off foreclosure. They're like actually executing on foreclosures on behalf of 
Banks and, and Fannie Mae. Um, it was, they were running the, you know, they're the, and they still are running the, you know, the widows and orphans court and profiting off of working class families who die without wills rather than, you know, helping rather than helping them through the process. Uh, and it, that's it like vampire level should, parasitism. Yeah, it's, it's gross. And, but, and people should realize it has not gone away. You know, the machine did not wake up Wednesday morning and say, oh, people have spoken. You know, let's shut this off and go do something else. You know, they are, uh, they're, they're, they're meeting, uh, and, you know, they're, they're, and they're working to, you know, fight a rear guard action to defend, you know, what they, what they see as theirs. So, you know, this, this fight did not end in, in one night. My last question is The Intercept has written a lot about Emily's list, which not only did not endorse Ocasio Cortez, but has failed to support Nixon and a, whole bunch of pro-choice women challengers who are taking on establishment Democrats. And I think this is a really important thing to examine, one, because Emily's List is powerful, um, but two, because it's exemplary of this larger web of Democratic establishment organizations that are utterly wedded most of the time to defending the status quo. And I was hoping you could explain a little bit about what role they've been playing and also lay out what you see as the the larger institutional state of play between ascendant left institutions and organizations like DSA, Justice Democrats, Working Family Parties on the one hand versus establishment institutions like the DCCC and Emily's List on the other. Yeah, and Tuesday night was a brutal one for Emily's List in New York because there were strong women candidates all across the state taking on, you know, like you said, men or uh, anti-choice women. And almost to a race, Emily's list stayed out. Um, under pressure, they got in at the last minute and endorsed Liuba Gretchen Shirley on Long Island running against the machine uh, candidate. And, uh, but the, the endorsement came so late as to be unhelpful. Um, and she, she this is the person who's running her, against Peter uh, King's for Peter King's seat. Right. And she's the one who went to the FEC and won a ruling that she could use campaign funds to pay for uh, child care, which, which is huge was a ruling. It's a huge deal. It's great. And it's a ruling that Emily's list uh, trumpeted and celebrated, uh, but still declined until the very last minute to actually endorse the woman who won the uh, won that ruling because. The man she was running against had Cuomo's backing, and Cuomo um, strikes fear in the hearts of any organization that relies on 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 big donors uh, for its funding, which is which uh, Emily's List to a very large extent does. You know, they also uh, took a big L in uh, Syracuse, where they had previously backed uh, a woman named Juanita Perez Williams, um, who's anti-abortion, mayor and lost. Right, and then right, we reported. Um, that uh, turned out, yeah, she'd gone to the March for Life, and she'd been what she called a pro-life uh, advocate. Um, she was she wasn't very upfront about that to Emily's List. She even went to Emily's List gala this year, and so that that stopped them from endorsing uh, her. But they refused to endorse her actual pro-choice opponent, and I don't know why um, they did. Maybe it was some type of uh, embarrassment over the entire situation, but that was a case of them not 
it, it wasn't, I don't want to blame them for making a staff error, but it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's telling. It's a revealing error. Happened. It is because the way that she was outed as a pro-life advocate in her own words was that uh, local Democrats reached out to us because we had been covering the race and said, Hey, you know, Juanita Perez Williams has been up on up in our Democratic Facebook uh, fight for years, arguing against abortion rights. Like so, in other words, they were they were not because their decision was not made. It was not driven by uh, locals, by people that knew what was happening on the ground. They had no idea. They're not going to read every single Facebook post that anybody's ever written. But if they would have asked local Democrats, "Hey, any flags?" on uh, old Juanita Perez Williams here. Some of them might have been like, well, actually, yeah, she gets in flame wars all the time About. over abortion <laughs> <laughs> and, and was, Well, on, on what side? Uh, not on your side. Um, and so, yeah, so they stayed out of that race. B triple C back, Williams. Yeah. It's so utterly revealing because, I mean, there's, there's a strong case to me, prima facie case against Emily's list from the left, I think, to be made that it's ideologically very problematic to have your entire ostensible policy platform be pro-choice and women candidates exclusively, which disconnects, severs, you know, abortion rights from broader issues of women's liberation. Um, but then what this shows is that even is just a fig leaf for their their true function, which is backing the establishment. You know, in the story that we did about Emily List in New York, Heidi Sykes, who runs, uh, who co-founded uh, Vote Pro-Choice, which is kind of a, a new version of Emily's List relying on small votes small donors, um, she she makes the case that she thinks Emily's List can evolve to this situation. And, and we'll see. Like, they are stuck right now because they rely on big, big donors. And if you rely on big donors, then you have to do what the Andrew Cuomo's of the world tell uh, your big donors to do. Because, you know, the world of uh, big money is, is, is funny. Like, in, in some ways, donors are telling candidates what to do and in other ways um, bosses like Cuomo are telling donors what to do um, and so Emily Smith knows if they you know if they buck uh, Cuomo Cuomo can cut them off um, but Cuomo can't cut off you know, vote pro-choice can't cut off move on or justice Democrats or PCCC or any of these other groups that have uh, you know dispersed their funding among uh, millions of uh, different people. Cuomo can't can't stop that. To close out, describe what you see as like the state of play with these new insurgent left groups um, that are starting to flex their muscle, um, including DSA Justice Democrats, which are well, DSA is old but new in its newly powerful form. Justice Democrats, rather new. WFP, not so new, but um, kind of maybe newly in its in its groove. Um, how do you see the fight between those sorts of institutions in terms of the, the power and the money versus like the DCCCs, the, the Emily's lists? Yeah, the irony is that the kind of left insurgents are exploiting uh, in many ways what the establishment uh, built on purpose, which is a, a cynical system um, that, that is designed to depress turnout. You know, the, the powers that be have, have done almost nothing over the years to do anything to encourage more enfranchisement and more 
participation in primaries and in New York, they've done everything they can to discourage it. And that's why you have this, these wildly low turnout numbers. But now it's being flipped on them because when you have this incredibly low turnout, the number, the absolute number of people that you need to get to the polls becomes achievable. Ocasio-Cortez knew that if she could get something like 12, 13,000 people out to the polls, she could defeat the sitting congressman. Uh, and, and she did that. And she had more than a thousand volunteers by, by election day working. That means that, that, that you know, you're, you're going to get a base number of votes just from people who come out and vote against the incumbent just because that's what they do. Uh, on top of that, if every one of those volunteers can somehow, um, you know, rally five to 10 people, all of a sudden you have a ball game. Um, and so the, the left is, uh, is learning um, how to get their message out, how to use, um, the, how to use Facebook, voter file, text messaging, um, digital ads, and, and uh, soldiers on the ground um, going door to door in, you know, in combination to, to get to these uh, smaller numbers. And the, the, the establishment methods of uh, fighting back against this are, are not as effective. You, you, all, you know, what Crowley did is bomb the airwaves with uh, positive commercials about Joe Crowley. <laughs> and that, that cost you millions of dollars and, and, it, and it got him, what, 11,000 votes or whatever. Ryan Grimm, thank you very much. You got it. Grimm is DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that working class politics compels legislative recognition of particular interests of the workers by taking advantage of the divisions among the bourgeoisie itself. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. This week, lots of episodes. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And also, please do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help.